From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. There is no doubt we face a profound economic challenge. We now need stability and unity. I pledge that I will serve you with integrity and humility. The most important objective for our country right now is stability. Governments cannot eliminate volatility in markets. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. And I'm Stephen Carroll. It feels like, Caroline, we are playing a game of counting every tiny piece of data that we get out for the UK (laughs) this week ahead of the autumn statement on Thursday. Today, it's jobs numbers uh, showing that unemployment crept up ever so slightly. um, But really interesting factors involved in this. Wages grew 5.7% in the three months uh, to September. So that's the fastest in over a year feeding into the whole picture around inflation and, you know, is pushing up wages, pushing yes. up prices, etc. And then the idea of how many people are not working. So participation in the workforce increased ever so slightly over that period, but it's still 122,000 people fewer than in the second quarter of this year. So that's the, the three months previously. Compared to before the pandemic, participation down by 400,000 people, almost half a million people. So this question of What's happened to all those people and why are they not? Because this is people who are either not looking for work or are not available for work. Yeah. And this is why you've got such a shortage of people to do the jobs that we need done in the UK. And it is a problem for government. It's a problem for business. You've got half a million workers in the past two years who have dropped out of the workforce basically largely due to long-term sickness, but we don't really have very good data about it. So yes, jobs data ahead of the autumn statement. We've also got the inflation figures uh, and we've got a statement from the Bank of England's Andrew Bailey before we get there. So yes, all of the focus is on Jeremy Hunt and basically whether we have done enough, whether the government has done enough in terms of reassuring markets that we are back in safe hands. I thought Callum Pickering's piece in The Telegraph, you know, he's a regular on Bloomberg TV and radio from Berenberg, uh, talking about how actually um, austerity is a good thing. He makes a really good argument that we do still need fiscal discipline. Yes, well, that is one big topic that we're discussing today. The other one, of course, we're watching what's happening at the G20 in Bali. Lots of focus on how Rishi Sunak is going to be approaching foreign policy as prime minister. Let's take a listen to what he had to say a little bit earlier in Bali. Well, this morning at the G20, we saw international condemnation of Russia's war in Ukraine. And with Russia's foreign minister sitting there, we highlighted both the illegality and barbaric nature of Russia's war and also the devastating impact it is having on people around the world through higher food and energy prices. We have a responsibility to work with our G20 allies to fix the global economy, to grip inflation, but also to safeguard and preserve the international order. And that's what we're going to do. Okay, we'll have more on the G20 coming up later in the programme. 
So we're counting down to Thursday's autumn statement and the rumours of potential measures just keep on coming. Let's unpack some of them with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Therese Raphael. Welcome back to the radio studio, Therese. I don't think I've ever heard of a an autumn statement quite so leaked, although the initial um, view had been that it was going to be a very tough austerity type budget now that that view seems to be being rowed back is that your assessment yeah i think the government has an interest in the markets having as much advance warning of the main shape of the statement as possible so that there are no repeats of the kind of surprise we saw with quasi quartang uh september budget uh in which you know what was priced in was announced, but there was, a, you know, additional uh, tax cuts on top of that. Then, then Quasi Quartang, as we know, doubled down when he uh, went on the radio on the Sunday afterwards. And this government wants a budget that lands pretty much in the zone that people are expecting. And that will mean fiscal tightening for sure. It will mean some increase in taxation, will mean some spending cuts. And at the same time, they also want to give uh, you know, a sense that it's not all doom and gloom. This isn't austerity 2.0. They're not uh, going down a route that's going to, uh, you know, quash investment. And that's, you know, that's the very narrow, uh, you know, landing zone mm-hmm. that uh, that Jeremy Hunt has on Thursday. So, yes, lots of leaks, uh, lots of trial balloons, I'd have to say, over the mm. last couple of weeks as well. Some of those may not be announced. Um, you know, we always talk about, a, you know, the, the, the chancellor pulling a rabbit out of a hat in the budget and, you know, what surprises are they going to have? And you sort of get the sense that this budget isn't going to be big on surprises. I'm sure there will be things that we, you know, haven't haven't gone over with a fine tooth cone yet, but I don't think it's going to be the kind of budget where, you know, as it was with Quartang, we all sat back and thought, wow, what didn't see that coming? Yeah, perhaps no money for rabbits or hats this time around, <laughs> I think. The Sun is, is calling it the Scrooge budget. And interesting, I was reading Bloomberg Economics analysis saying that despite looking the similar size on paper, Jeremy Hunt's uh, cuts will be very small compared to George Osborne's, the original recent austerity budget. And that's because George Osborne, but cuts came on top of a big programme that was planned by the previous Labour government back in 2010. It doesn't make Jeremy Hunt's job any easier, but there are going to be some pretty unpleasant measures involved. Yeah, I mean, the problem now is obviously that it comes on top of uh, the pandemic, it comes on top of Brexit, and we've been hearing a lot lately about Brexit costs. And I think we're going to continue to be discussing the impact of that on the economy because it has just slowed down the supply side um, in so many ways, whether it is in terms of immigrants and uh, contribution to the labor force. And, you know, remember, a lot of growth comes from, uh, you know, from expanding the labor force. And we don't have that, whether it's, uh, you know, the rising costs of imports, um, whether it's uh, investment decisions and, you know, uncertainty. And I think the uncertainty aspect is is now uh, sort of faded away. But, you know, all of those things have have made it, um, uh, you know, pretty tough environment on top of which Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the impact on energy prices. And so inevitably, you know, Hunt will be compared with uh, with Osborne. Mm. In some ways, though, the, 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 the question is whether the recession, how long is it going to go on? Because we came out of the 2010, uh, you know, the financial crisis recession, and we grew quite strongly. And, you know, if the era of cheap money, of 
ultra-low interest rates is really over. What fuels growth now? And I think that's the question this government has to answer. What are they going to do to, to sort of pull the economy out, whether it's in a year's time? Certainly, they're going to want to do it before the, the next election. But I think you know, it, it's, it, there are short-term distributional impacts mm-hmm. of a budget. And then there's a question of what is the long-term vision it's it's conveying. Yeah, absolutely. And our analysis shows it's still reportedly about £70 billion of sort of bad fiscal news, as it were, mm. tax hikes and spending cuts raising just over £50 billion. So that's the kind of expectation for Thursday. But look, you've also been writing about um, something else, that again, that's been sort of floated, the the potential changes to non-DOM status is actually something that's being pushed by Labour. Yeah, so this is a long-time bugabear of the Labour Party. We saw Rachel Reeves uh, on this issue in April. It's a sensitive one for the Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, because his wife uh, had non-DOM status or has non-DOM status, uh, of course, as the uh, daughter of um, the founder of Infosys. She receives uh, quite substantial dividends from her share in Infosys and as a non-DOM, which means you're non-domiciled and you can elect not to pay UK taxes on uh, foreign income or assets. And there are quite a lot of non-DOMs in the UK economy at the high end of the earnings spectrum. They contribute a lot in taxes, um, but they also sit at the high ends of industry. And the interesting thing I found is, you know, we think of non-DOMs as, uh, you know, maybe the top uh, echelons of banks or hedge funds, but really across a lot of industries, including you know mining, construction, architecture, but also in the creative industries, film. Um, you have uh, uh, non-doms, and you know, these are people the government is going to want to keep attracting. But the optics are obviously poor at a time when you know everyone else has a cost of living uh, uh, squeeze. Taxes are going up in general. And so it's a really bad look to have, you know, this kind of exemption for very high net worth individuals from the need to pay taxes on global income. Is there any money in it, Therese, if they did get rid of it? Um, So Starmer claims that there's 3.2 billion a year added for the exchequer. Now that comes... uh, that comes from uh, a very interesting study from the University of Warwick and London School of Economics, and it require it, it, it entails a bunch of extrapolation on how much offshore assets do the current non-DOMs hold. They don't have to declare that, so they've they've arrived at that number by uh, looking at a similar profile of UK taxpayer, estimating that there's ten or so billion held offshore a year, and then also looking at the 2017 response to changes in the non-DOM code. Uh, under George Osborne, mm-hmm. in which it was predicted that many would leave and they didn't leave. I think there's a, it's, it's very tricky to have a policy hinge on those two sets of guesses because even even though they you know they're they're modeled and um, you know these are economists who you know who tried to do it quite methodically, but Osborne built in a lot of cushion for non-DOMs. There were uh, ways to still shelter offshore taxes. There's a long lead in time. So to really change it dramatically, the tax lawyers I've spoken to say there will be a behavioral effect. People are not 
absolutely wed to being here. Yes, the schools are better. Yes, you know, they love London. Most non-doms are in London in the Southeast, but there's no certainty that they will stay. Other countries, France, Italy, Spain, Belgium, Greece, are also offering very attractive regimes. Italy put one in place in 2017, direct response to the UK, uh, rowing back some of those changes. So, uh, you know, I think Sudak's going to be reluctant to do anything about that because mm-hmm. he needs to attract the investment. But, you know, obviously, politically, it's popular and it gives Labour an attack line. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The G20 summit seen a flurry of high-level meetings between world leaders discussing the war in Ukraine, the global economy and growing tensions over tech supply chains. According to a draft statement seen by Bloomberg, the summit communique will condemn Russia's war in Ukraine, saying that Moscow is, quote, causing immense human suffering and exacerbating existing fragilities in the global economy. So what of Putin's aims and next moves? How would any peace deal be reached? And what of the language in this communique? We discussed that with someone who spent a great deal of time in Russia, indeed someone who has met Vladimir Putin, Sir Tony Brenton, a fellow of Wolfson College, Cambridge, but also formerly the British ambassador to Russia. Yeah, of course, the Russians have never called it a war. They've called it a special military operation. Uh, so the document, it's a very... What I've seen is is actually rather expertly drafted to steer a delicate way around all sorts of people's obstacles. Um, it doesn't directly criticise Russia. It criticises the war, but not doesn't blame Russia for it. It implicitly criticises Western sanctions. If you look at the economic bit of it, it's all about disruption of supply chains and hitting the, the global energy markets and so on, which war has something to do with it. But the real source of that disruption is, of course, Western sanctions. So it steers, it steers around various delicate points, I think the Indonesians have probably done a brilliant job. With a bit of luck, they'll get it through. I mean, at the moment, what degrees at the level of officials? It has to get through heads of government, uh, and there's no guarantee of that. But it looks like a pretty craftsman-like job. Now, you've met Vladimir Putin in the past. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, on how Russia will proceed in its offensive, in its war in Ukraine, 
um, given that it has suffered so many defeats recently, notably the retreat from her son? Yeah. Um, Putin, people have said, suggested that Putin is behaving irrationally. Um, I have to say the retreat from Kherson suggests rather the reverse. I mean, obviously, Russia has had a sequence of defeats now and is losing the war. But the last two big ones in Kiev and in Kharkiv were fiascos by, on, on the Russian military part. Kherson has been presented as, and this is reasonably and unusually honest of the Russians, as a strategic withdrawal from a place they could no longer hold on to. And what looks as if it's happening is that the Russians are hunkering down, drawing in their defensive lines to sit out the winter, strengthen their troops, hope that something else turns up diplomatically or however, uh, and look for a better situation come the end of the, of the winter lull. So uh, on Putin himself, I mean, the Putin I knew was a gambler, but always calculated risks, the seizure of Crimea back in 2014 and so on. He, he calculated the odds and unusually, it has to be said, one. The invasion of, of, of Ukraine was completely out of character or completely out of the character of the Putin I knew. It was an uncalculated gamble and has obviously proven a disaster. Since then, however, he has been forced to do things which he didn't really want to do, but which Russia needed to do, the mobilization, which has been very painful, and now the surrender of Kherson, which has also been pretty painful, suggests that he's limiting his objectives, getting mm -hmm. back to a more sensible approach to this war. And I'm pretty sure would be willing to negotiate if sensible bases for negotiation emerged. Okay, well, what are sensible bases then? Um, the Ukrainian President Zelensky appealed to the G19, as he called them, to press for peace now. I mean, surely the only peace deal possible would seem to run via Beijing? Well, Beijing will help. I mean, Zelensky's terms set out the difficulties of our getting to a negotiation, really. Zelensky wants... First of all, all Ukrainian territory back, which includes Crimea. And I cannot state firmly enough how central Crimea is going to be in the end game. Because if Putin is going to hang on to anything and do almost anything to hang on to it, it's Crimea. So, first of all, all uh, Ukrainian territory to be returned. Secondly, Russian war reparations. And thirdly, trials of Russian war criminals. Now, the Russians are simply not going to start on that basis. And there is some sign the Americans in particular are trying to edge Ukraine into a more realistic approach to what we neg negotiable. Now, that's very politically difficult because obviously Zelensky has all the right on his side. His country has been invaded. There have been appalling atrocities committed on his territory and lots of destruction. But if there is to be a negotiated outcome, then something has to be done to narrow the gap between these Ukrainian demands and what Russia might be willing to accept. How do you get the two sides to a negotiating table if, if you think there is a, a willingness or an opportunity to negotiate? Well, it's not going to happen immediately. As I say, the Russians are hunkering down. The Ukrainians are on a roll. They, they hope they're going to continue the success of military successes after Kherson. So we'll have to see still, essentially, how the military situation evolves. What is also evolving, however, is almost visibly U.S. Um, discomfort with the thought that if the war gets to Crimea, which it's not that far away from now, then the Russians might turn irrational. Um, and other major states, France, Germany, and so on, that they really want a negotiated outcome to this. What they don't want, what none of us really wants, is a sort of North Korea, Russia, angry, defeated, um, revanchist, stuck right beside Europe. We have to find an outcome which, yes, punishes Russia for, for the war, 
make sure they don't do it again, but also leaves them um, in, in a situation to begin to mend relations with Europe. What we can't land ourselves with, if I could put it another way, is a Weimar Russia. A Russia, the same as Germany after the First World War, where the peace process, the peace treaty that was imposed on them, simply gave us the Second World War. Mm. We're speaking to Sir Tony Brenton, fellow of Wilson College, Cambridge, also formerly the British ambassador to Russia. Sir Tony, very interesting to get your views on the way forward when it comes to Ukraine. What do you think the current British Prime Minister's foreign policy is? Rishi Sunak's only a few weeks into the office, barely, although we know him as former Chancellor, obviously. Is Sunak simply a continuation of Boris Johnson's foreign policy. I mean, he he gave the, the you know the line that we all had expected that Russia should get out of Ukraine and end this barbaric war. But Britain has been quite important in terms of supplying weaponry. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, there are only very odd hints that have emerged, and for the moment, Rishi Sunak has doubled down on the very hard line that we've been taking on Russia. We are, without doubt, the biggest hawk among major European states. And there's been no cost to that. We've actually been ahead of the game so far. I, I slightly worry that when it does come to peace negotiations, we're going to find ourselves left to one side because the Russians aren't interested in talking to us at all. But at the moment, uh, the, the, the maintenance of our very hard line on, on Russia makes sense. What also makes sense is the odd is the hint that emerged, I think, from Sunak on his flight out to um, to Bali yesterday, mm-hmm. that he may be reconsidering our attitude towards China. China also is a systemic challenge to us, but it's a lot further away, a lot less direct and illegal than, than Russia is. And for a country like the UK, which has uh, not cut links, but broken off from its biggest, biggest trading partner, which is the, was the EU, of course, which is looking around for new economic opportunities in the world, there's China, second biggest economy in the world, biggest trading nation in the world. Our attitude up until arrival of Sunak has been they're as bad as Russia in many ways you know that they're, they're evil autocrats all of that yesterday on the plane there was an odd hint that we may look for a warmer economic relationship with China and certainly Boris Johnson or Liz Truss were working on yes but hang on um that is a change in language from the prime minister himself isn't it because yes. uh, as uh, in terms of what I've read of the reporting of that conversation it was Sunak using the phrase systemic challenge of China rather than systemic threat which is something that he used in his campaigning over the summer to become PM. Yeah. Yeah. No, well, I mean, there's a difference between a campaigning. I mean, what, what do they say? Politicians campaign in poetry sure. and govern in prose. Um, you have to relearn the world once you're no longer trying to get into the seat. Sunak is now in the seat. He spent, ever since he arrived as prime minister, his principal preoccupation, as you've copiously reported, has been with the economic mess that the UK is in. And quite an important part of the background to that is how we um, angle ourselves internationally in terms of trying to rebuild the links or build the links, which offer some substitute for the breaking off or diminution of links with the European Union. And there's China. Um, so, Tony, we are very focused on, given that you mentioned the economic issues, the, the autumn statement on Thursday Public services are going to face a cut. I'm wondering what sort of effect, should there be a cut to foreign office services, could have effect on, on Britain's foreign policy power if, if, if cutbacks have to be made? Well, I think inevitably so. I mean, what diplomats, and I'm still enough of a diplomat to say this again, is that the foreign office costs less than one tank or some you know, major piece of military equipment. It's actually a very cheap um, uh, 
department to run. It's basically just people. Um, and it does play quite an important part in spreading British influence. It has changed since I was there, of course, because it now incorporates the development ministry. And there's much bigger money involved there and a much bigger direct threat to UK's overseas influence. Um, we had a commitment to spend 0.7% of our GDP on foreign aid. That's already been cut back to 0.5% because of the economic problems we're facing. And it's becoming clear that a growing proportion of that 0.5% is actually not being spent overseas at all, but is being spent domestically on um, housing immigrants who are getting across the channel. Now, the less money we have to spend internationally is going to diminish our international standing, obviously, in various ways. Now, that's a, a, a price which we are paying. We're having to cut our coat uh, according to our cloth, sadly. And it un underlies the lesson, which I'm sure is at the top and front of Sunak's mind, which is we need to get the economy moving again. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.